This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. John Greiner has been the Ogden police chief, the state senator for District 18, and the manager of the airport, among many other things. He's been involved in countless big decisions that affect the Ogden area. He's friends with many other decision makers. And now he's running for mayor. Do people like, I bet it's, it's got to be different for some people. Some people probably call you senator. Some still call you chief. Is that? Some still call me colonel. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you were reserves for yeah, what? 20 years. something years. And was that right out of college? No. Um, that was kind of a strange situation back then. Uh, I got my draft notice to go to Vietnam. Oh. And uh, so uh, Weber State was starting an ROTC program, brand new. So I went up there and said, if I got to go, I'd rather go as an officer than drafted. And so <laughs> they they said, okay, if, you, if you'll if you do this, and, 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 and no contract. They said, if you'll go to Fort Knox, Kentucky with the other group, uh, we'll we'll accept you into the program, but you got to do really well at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Mm. So I went and I did well. And, and coming back through Chicago, the headline said, President Nixon won't draft over number 125. <laughs> and my number was 131. <laughs> so I took the head, took the newspaper, went down to the draft board and said, what does this mean? This says, means you're not going to get drafted, even though I, you know, got the draft notice and so later on, the guys that I'd went to Fort Knox with came back and were teaching at Weber State and talked me into joining the reserves as a part-time job. I was on the police department. And, oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, so it wasn't that you were already committed and all that. Nope, it's just nope. Later just, on, they were like, hey, come do this. Yeah, it's a good part-time job. And, oh. and, it, and it's an excellent. It turned out to be a great. I got to see the world. You know, foreign country, Korea, Japan, Germany, yeah. all of those places I got to go see at the expense of yeah. Army. yeah right so right it was all good i think the scary part was uh was it 91 when we were going to do desert storm and desert shield and they changed my summer camp i was supposed to take my unit i was company commander i was supposed to take him to new cumberland army depot in pennsylvania and they called in the last two or three weeks before that and said get your whole unit with shots this you're going to kaiser slot in germany oh. you're going to be getting pre-positioned things out and ready to go because we're going to fighting in kuwait wow so yeah i did that for a while and uh you grew up in ogden i did uh born and raised um my father uh worked at hillfield and and when my mother start was pregnant with the fourth child he says we're moving because we only had a two-bedroom house and hmm. so we moved down to 3200 block of liberty okay and it was brand kind of a brand new area and a brand new school t.o smith and so mm-hmm. i started kindergarten at t.o smith my mother was the lab manager at the mckay and so they could afford a little better house, and so we got a kind of a new house in a new subdivision with a new school. And so then it was T.O. Smith, Ogden High, I'm guessing? No, no. Well, Ogden High, but I had Washington in between, Washington Junior High. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was there was an elementary there, and so we were the most diverse school in the state because you had all of the west side plus that part of town going to that school. So as a white kid, I was almost in the minority if you took the minorities and compared them to the white kids. Huh. The, Interesting. Uh, Not many people in Ogden get to grow up that way. <laughs> <laughs> and then went to Ogden High School. Yeah, like you know, alma mater. Nice. And then uh, Weber State? Weber State. I wanted to be a stockbroker and uh, uh, met some guys. Um, they came in and said, hey, how would you like to be a volunteer police officer? And I thought, well, you know, okay. So I went and did that. And but so you say it's like a volunteer policeman at first? It's, a, it's called a reserve police officer. Uh-huh. And so you ride around with a regular. And so you end up in a two, as a two-man car. And then when you do the special events, that's the reserves out there mm. doing traffic control and the rodeo and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, okay. The, the standards weren't much. I mean, you only had to do like 10 or 15 hours a month. Mm. Like the, you've gone through the academy or no? No, 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 no. no, no. Back right. in those days, uh, they hired you and then they'd look for a slot put you in the academy so i was on the department full-time for more than six months before i went to the academy oh and so yeah that's kind of a interesting different situation and so when you get hired onto the department do they like give you a beat like how does that work well in those days uh, the the town was divided into four geographical areas and then you had uh 
the rest of the unit. You had a traffic unit and you had, you know, five squads to cover the whole week. And I'm in this, I've been on the department like 30 days mm-hmm. and they're always looking for officers to work, um, hour, extra hours. Mm-hmm. So they called me and said, can you come work traffic like on a, on a Friday? And I have a auto fatal a lady gets killed in an intersection and I do the traffic report. Never done one re- before. So the captain gets my report, looks at it, says, eh, come to traffic. So I'm transferred to traffic on Saturday. And Sunday is the hi-fi murders. Oh, wow. So they transfer me back to the detectives because I grew up in town and knew everybody, uh, especially the black community. And so I worked the hi-fi murders. Wow. That was like in your first little bit. Yeah, I hired on full-time in March of 74. Been at reserve from there to March. And then the hi-fi miners were in April. Wow. And so, like, you were the detective? I worked uh, on a guy named Keith Roberts, who was the driver of the van in the deal. The other two guys were the ones that went inside and killed the people. And, mm-hmm. and he ended up in prison for 20 years, and then they let him out. Wow. So you're, like, testifying in court and all that? For I those? didn't have to testify in court because I worked on Roberts, and they focused on Andrews. The other two. You know. I see. Wow, that's that's quite a first case to get. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then you really kind of become an adrenaline junkie to the job, and oh, yeah. So yeah, that kept me interested for twenty-two years, and then they offered me the chief job, so I did that for sixteen. And and so then, yeah, what is the like? What is the path to chief? Is that like uh, I don't know? You just kind of have to show the the mayor you've got. No. In Ogden, you had to kind of come up through the ranks. So you get to a certain rank, and you're, and then they advertise for the job. And so I think in those days, if you had, you had to be a sergeant with at least 10 years or higher to apply. And so there were four or five guys that applied, uh, some lieutenants. There were two captains that didn't want to be chief, so they didn't apply. And at the time I applied, I was a lieutenant. Mm-hmm. So one of seven lieutenants. And so I think five of us applied and maybe one sergeant. And uh, so we went through a process with uh, the personnel department. They had people come in and interview chiefs from other jurisdictions. And so I'm getting ready to leave for um, a vacation with my wife. So I called the CAO and said, I'm going to be out of town for two weeks. What would you like me to do? You know, I, I'm assuming you have another interview process. He went and talked to the mayor, and the mayor called me back and said, uh, no, we're going to offer you the chief's job. Um, go enjoy, and we'll tell the other candidates while you're gone that you're the new chief. Huh. Well, I came back <laughs> two weeks later, and Glenn Meekham said, I, I didn't tell him, so you're going to have to go tell him. <laughs> so I invited the department to the city council chambers and told them that I was the new chief and what we were going to do and huh. kind of laid it out. Like, can you just kind of give me the main duties of the chief? Is it mostly just like, I mean, you're not setting schedules. It's probably budget a lot. Like, like, what do you do as chief? Um, personnel and budget are the big parts of the chief's job. But Glenn Meekham had asked me uh, in 95 when he made me chief, I want you down at the legislature. I want you to find out how the process works, get involved, meet the people. Because you do lobbying for law enforcement. And so I went down to the legislature uh, in 95 uh, to learn how it worked. Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal to him. His his uh, law partner was Richard Richards, who was the National Republican chairman for the Nixon administration, or mm-hmm. how Nixon got into office. And so he was kind of uh, like advising you as you were doing the lobbying side of it. Is that sort of it? Well, we had some talks, but I didn't do a lot with him. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a thousand bills to get introduced every legislative session, yeah. and. Uh, several hundred of them deal with law enforcement. So Meekham's concern was that stuff was going to get through the process that was not good for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So he wanted me down there in the halls lobbying. And then in, in a twist of events, uh, late 90s, uh, we had an issue with what um, was called an initiative B. And that got pushed through by a very rich guy in the United States by the name of George Soros. Mm-hmm. And so we spent three or four years um, reversing it. Hmm. It was a citizen initiative, and we got the legislature to reverse it. And so during all of that process, uh, the attorney general uh, had a problem with one of the senators uh, who didn't want to talk to us about it. And 
So he said, how about you just file to run against him because you live in his district? Oh, really? And he was the, was the county attorney up in Summit County. His name is Dave Thomas. Mm-hmm. So I filed, and you know we wanted to get his attention. Well, he called me on the phone and basically told me Republicans don't run against Republicans and I'm, you know, and I'm a pretty good guy. And he got pretty nasty about it. And I said, you know what? Game on. We're going to make this a campaign. Huh. So my son was graduating from high school and I'd hired a, a campaign manager and then all that. And the campaign manager called me and says, where are you? I said, I'm on the Eiffel tower <laughs> with my son. And he said, uh, you know that the primary is like in three or four days. And I says, can't help it. I promised my son, was more important. Really? And uh, so I got home the night of the primary, and I had won the primary, and so then I would go against the Democrat in in the general election. Yeah. So then you're in the state Senate. Right. But And are you still police chief? Yep. So when you're in the Senate, you're in session what? Uh, I don't know, three months out of the year, is that right? Six weeks. And then, But then you can get called back. Like, is there much to do throughout the year other when you're not in session? Well, you have a monthly meeting where you come Everybody comes, and so you work on bills. And then if there's a need for a special session, the governor calls that. And, you know, there might be a a flood someplace or a fire someplace, and they need to reallocate some money. And so they'll call you in for one day. Mm. And usually at those one-day deals, they also try to put some of the bills that are in committees, what they call um, a bill may not make it through, and so they'll send it to a, a committee to review it during the, those other you know, 10 months of the year. Mm -hmm. And so is a lot of the stuff that you're, I mean, the stuff you're initiating there, is it pretty police related or? Um, I did a lot of police naturally, but I, but I did the invasive species bill. Oh. um, For natural resources. I did um, underground utilities for um, blue steak. I did a number of those kinds of bills. So, well, what's that like? Like you've got to come in like you're like, "Okay, I'm a senator. I need to like uh have some stuff to focus on." Yeah, and that and therein is part of the problem because um a lot of times some of these guys or gals will only put in one or two bills just to say that, "Well, I did something." Yeah. You know, you go back and look at the national deal, there are senators who've never got a bill passed their whole time back there. Right. And so, yeah, I was pretty active. I did about, I introduced at least nine or 10 a year uh-huh. for the four years I was there. I think oh, wow. The, to- the total ended up being 40-something. But I mean, a constituent comes to you with a problem. You sit down with them and you say, okay, let's look at the law. How can we tweak it? Because the laws are really, even the ones that are passed, those 400 out of 1,000 that are passed are flawed. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you come back and... Um, tweak them and so some of the people in in the legislature will tweak a bill two sentences and they consider that their bill for the year or uh-huh. two bills for the year uh-huh. and 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 you know and the, and the leadership would always say try to minimize the number of bills you put in because they'll they all require committee time and oh. and those kinds of things so yeah you have this you want to serve the constituents so you run a bill and then you have leaderships telling you don't put too many of them in. And I see. So it's huh. it's a trade-off. So I was looking at your time as chief. <clears throat> a couple of things that were like, I mean, I think that they still have an impact today. One of them was the the gang task force. Was that during your time? Mm-hmm. And that was like a that was like a big deal, even pretty controversial at the time, right? Well, there were two parts of that were controversial. I ran a bill to create a gang-free zone in Ogden. Uh-huh. Took a model from California, worked it through the legislature, got it passed. And so for a number of years, we had a gang-free zone in Ogden, like 80% of the city, where if you were a gang member and you associated with other gang members, you could be arrested. Mm-hmm. So we reduced the gang um, by doing that, mm-hmm. the, the incidence of gangs, and we did the gang task force, and I created a unit in the police department that focused on working on gang members. And it was kind of letting you trace contacts, like these people are all known associates, mm-hmm. and so we can now go talk to all of them and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I mean, that was pretty successful, right? Like, it was. Got but it was, it became really su- successful with uh, Esri. Esri is, an, is the world's probably the biggest um, mapping company. And I had a friend who had been a crime analyst for me who went to w- work for him. And so we got with the owner of the company, a guy by the name of Jack Dangermont. And 
he says, okay, let's recreate the New York Real-Time Crime Center and tone it down and use mapping in the Ogden one. So what you end up with is, um, let's say, every everything is on a map. Okay, and that's your focus point. So you can take every gang member and identify him by name and put his address next to it. And it's on an Excel spreadsheet. You can just click it and drop it, and it'll create a layer on a map. Hmm. So... And I won't. Use, we can do gangs if you want, but the one I like the best is one like vehicle burglaries or house burglaries or that. So we create a layer. This layer is recently reduced released parolees. These are people who've been involved in burglaries before. These are people who are truant from school today. Here are the. So you end up dropping ten map layers on this map, and you say, "Well, we've had five burglaries within this block. Uh-huh. This kid's truant. He's." He's on parole from juvenile court as a as a house burglar. Let's go talk to him first. Oh wow! And so instead of getting ten burglaries from the kid, uh-huh. you you're identifying him at four or five. Oh wow! And so you've reduced crime by those six burglaries because they're not going to happen because now you have the guy in the system. Yeah, and it happens with all of that. Whether and that's what we what they mostly do at the crime center is is look at patterns that involve people who do it location time of day yeah. did, did an officer do an fi on a guy on this guy someplace close to the time that happened so it gives you a real good starting point instead of me handing the burglary report to the officer or the detective and saying okay get started well he's now he's got a big head start because he's got likely people and there's a there's a huge recidivism rate with the people who do these kind of things yeah no, I like that data-driven decision-making. It makes yeah. sense. Well, and it's making me... Because you're just taking statistics, data that's already out there, right? Yeah. Like so it. if I hand you a page of statistics, how long is it going to take you to do that as a detective? Yeah. It might take you a whole day. Right. And so I'm handing you everything in five minutes. Right. We advance the crime center so that when you're going to a house, we already know because we're pulling the information from the dispatch. When you're going to the house... Oh, you might find Bob, Steve, and Harry there. And oh, by the way, Bob's got a warrant for this. Mm. So when you show up at the house, say, hey, Bob, yeah, we can remedy this problem. We're going we're to take you in on this arrest warrant. Mm-hmm. So he knows, he or she knows before they even show up, who they're dealing with, what the likelihood of them being involved in something more than what you're being dispatched on. And Interesting. So you get all this intelligence coming at yeah. you. So when I started in 74... The radio was in the car. Right. And so you took the microphone and you hung it outside the window in case you had to run to the car and get and scream for help, right? <laughs> really? And so when I was there, it was a big deal to me because the call volume was going up so bad uh-huh. that we do a lot of uh, electronic stuff. Uh-huh. So I did the, I put computers in cars, I did walkie talkies, I did all those kinds of things to make it easier for the officer to do his job. We didn't have bulletproof vests when huh. I hired on. Those are all things that we brought to the table when I was chief. Um, tasers, all that kind of stuff. That's that. interesting. Because it's like you see policing evolve like that across the country. Right. But it's it's happening in each individual yes, PD. It is. It's not like there's some national coordination of it. No. Huh. And as you as a vendor have a product for sale and the chiefs go to annual chiefs conferences 15,000 chiefs from around the country. Mm-hmm. You're a vendor. You're showing off your product. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think I can make this work here. Mm-hmm. Or I can make this work there. And so then you've got this, the the crime center set up, and you start, ta- like, at some point it starts becoming like, well, we need to, we can start gathering more data. We can start, you know, getting access to cameras. Or, like, there was the, didn't we put up, like, a blimp up in the sky or oh, something? Oh, yeah, well, I had a blimp. I had sold the idea of doing the blimp, but we'd had grants, and Weber State had the program. Mm-hmm. And so we figured out a way to do a blimp, and uh, it was at, at the end of my career, and Jay Leno was giving me crap on the Tonight <laughs> Show. He, give, he did it at least two, uh, right. you know, giving me crap. Right, I remember that getting <laughs> national attention. And But it's still a viable idea. I mean... Oh, yeah, people are doing and, it with GPS now. Now they're doing it with drones. Yeah, yeah. Right. And But it's see... The problem with the drone is, is the battery life is only like 30 minutes. Yeah. But the blimp could stay up for seven or eight hours. Yeah. You just bring it down, throw a battery pack in, and put it back up. Yeah. So you're getting seven or eight hours of the same thing, and you just let it sit up there. And if you get a call, 
it's going 40 miles an hour to the call and it's sitting above you 400 feet oh. giving you aerial view of a situation. Wow. It would be great for fires. It was great. For, but it was just one of those things that never came to fruition. Hmm. You know, that just, I, it's something I'm curious about. Like, uh, is Ogden the kind of city, do we have that kind of crime here where there's, you know, multiple incidents going on very often? I, I get the sense people think we're high crime when we're really not as high crime. Then, and if you go back and look at it, Utah is one of the top five safest states in uh -huh. the union. And we get beat up on our crime rate, or at least Ogden's crime rate, because people don't really understand crime. So 1929, the FBI created eight areas of measurement for crime, for property, for people. And so at the end of the day, you get beat up on your crime rate because little Susie's stealing a pack of gum as a shoplift counts the same against you as a homicide because uh. it's a number. So the more your community has retail and you have aggressive uh, people in the stores enforcing it, the higher your crime rate goes. So look at the cities that are um, have a lot of retail. Uh, so, right. and, but there are cities like South Salt Lake, for instance, that have a high crime rate, but theirs is a lot of it is people related. Uh -huh. Yeah. And not retail or yeah. property related. And so the people who work in the crime center, they're like, are they data scientists? Are they also police officers? Um, some of them are officers. Most of them are civilians with the crime analysis mm. backgrounds. Yeah. So that is something like if a person is interested in law enforcement, but maybe, you know, where it hesitant to be on the street for some reason, you know, you can be a data scientist yes. that helps yes. analyze stuff. Yeah. for the. Huh. So the director of the crime center now was a 20 year police officer and detective. Mm. And, and he's kind of picked up the ball and carried it and hmm. created a real little analysis center to help the detectives do their job, help the officers responding on calls know what they're getting into. And so it's, it's kind of a 24-hour thing. It's, yeah. it's helping officers all the time. Uh, and I mean, then if you have an incident where there's a camera, like the top of 36th Street, you can go back and look at the footage and say, yeah, this car was there. Yeah. And so do you have any, just off, off the top of your head, any like real success stories of that crime center of like, you know, what we've been able to do with all of that information? Yeah, we started solving uh, old rapes Oh, because of the DNA that we could pull from the, the National Crime Database. Oh, But the best one, well, not the best one because there's been a lot of them over the years, but in the first 30 days that I put the crime center up, there was a, a incident out in North Ogden where a lady... A babysitter came up missing, okay? And my and my friend Polo Afavai is the chief out there. He works on it for 30 days, and he can't get anything going. He comes to me, and he says, I've got phone records. I've got this. I've got that. I don't know what I'm what to do. We haven't got a place to go. So bring uh, Dave Wheeloff in. He's the crime center guy. I said, this is what they've got. Let's t put it with our stuff see what we can do. We solved the crime within like 24 hours. Wow. We had it solved by Sunday. Huh. And it was, yeah, we used phone records, found a guy on a phone record that was a parolee, found we were doing license plate readers, and here's the car. So you triangulate the telephone records, and here it is going across the, the county, this phone of the, the potential suspect, and here's the body at Weber Canyon. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So it, it really is saving time. It's what it's all about. It's data manipulation to save time because it just takes so much time. I mean, you're doing over 100 calls a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and like I'm trying to think of what people's concerns about that would be like. I mean, I guess there's like a privacy concern. Like they sure. think maybe you're Absolutely. looking at them on a camera all day long or something. No. Or, or that the data is somehow going to like lead you to the wrong place. Like, are, are there instances of that kind of stuff happening? I don't remember any. I'm, I'm sure there are, but even the even the video feeds are are only on a 30 day cycle, so they're erased after 30 days. If you don't come with a need to know what happened on a camera on a certain day, it's erased. Mm. Um, but the beauty of the camera is, yeah, the camera is there and it's recording, but. It's, nobody's looking at it. Yeah. I mean, you could pull it up in this in the crime center if you wanted to look at it. Right. But there's 200 cameras across. You know, right. we have them at the water plant. We have them all kinds of places. You say, okay, we had a, a burglar alarm at this 
a location, which happens to be across the street from a camera. Mm -hmm. So you pull up the camera and you try to go through the time frame and see if you can find a likely suspect. Right. But you're not going to watch it. We're not going to watch the camera. You know, that, we're not paying those guys too much money to watch cameras. <laughs> right, right. But if you've got, a, got it, something to research, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You pull it up then. Well, and um, another thing I was curious about. So uh, a little while back, I had Rodney Layton with CJC. I assume you got to know him, right? Well, I, I actually helped start with that program. Yeah. Because Ann Frymuth was the director. Reed Richards from the, the state attorney general's office. It started out in a little strip mall at 24th and Wall um, by the viaduct. Mm -hmm. And then, then we moved up on 24th and Jackson or someplace like that. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to where its current location is. So I spent all 16 years of my life either, well, I was always on the Ogden Weber one. Mm -hmm. But then I got put on the state crime or children's justice center by the governor. Mm, I see. Okay. But we were talking about how, for the longest time, it was always the police officer doing the the interviews there, and then he he really even fought it for a while. But he eventually got talked into having these trained interviewers come in, and it's under the supervision of the officers and all of that. But you know, he was talking about how that really alleviated some of the resources that the police yes. department needed to put onto it. Yes. You know, and so I wonder if, like, I mean, I don't know. Do you have opinions about that, about, you know, people say we need to take things off of police officers and, and give them to other um, data scientists, interviewers, that kind of well, stuff? Well, you know? and I think you've seen a lot of that lately. Uh, let's try to remember what, what you are as a police officer. You're a high school graduate, went to the academy for six weeks, and now you're out on the street. And the first call you get is a child abuse call. Are you really equipped to do a good job for the detective that's going to follow up? Or are you better served taking that child to a, a facility and, and bringing family um, services in? And let and a lot of these people are interviewers. Rod was a police officer, so he, he didn't want to give up. You know, the police officers are, are important, but you're asking way too many things of a guy or a gal that right. really hasn't had a lot of experience. Let's put them with somebody that's got some experience, a trained interview in, in mm -hmm. child abuse or a trained interview in whatever you want to talk about. Well, yeah, because when I thought about that pressure, he was saying, you know, as the officer, the whether or not that person gets convicted is on you and your ability to, you know, carry this through to the finish line. So that seems like a ton of pressure it is. on an officer. And so I could see, yeah, anything you can take away to let them focus on that. Right. Yeah. And you have those kind of interviewers in the police department. They work directly in CJC. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They're part of the interview team. Like, can you think of some things as sheriff that you feel like are going to inform the way you would approach being the mayor? Or, not as sheriff, I'm sorry, as chief. <laughs> but you understand. You don't want to be the sheriff because you have to run the jail. But <laughs> it, you don't want to... The jail is, is a big deal. But yeah, yeah. Some of the things I think as mayor are you already know how the system works. And the best thing... Um, the city is looking for efficiencies. So, yeah, I, I made the police department efficient. Uh, we used all that technology to do those kinds of things. But a big part of the mayor's job is working with other people, friends, acquaintances, jurisdictions, governments. And, yeah, so uh, every year you're looking for ways to do projects in your community. So you work with the chamber and you work with the Utah League of Cities and Towns and you work with WACOG and you work with those kind of people um, to get what you want done. So when you show up at the legislature, you're not a stranger. I'm not a stranger. Um, but I think several of the other candidates would be complete strangers. Mm -hmm. And it's that relationship. And I'll give you a, a good example. Um, so I, I do four years as a senator and... And I'm, uh, I'm an interim airport manager. And they said, what is the, what is the long-term goal of that airport? Because it's kind of been stale for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I said, well, let's do a feasibility study. So I got out of the legislature, meet with my friends. I said, hey, how about giving me $300,000 to do a feasibility study? <laughs> and they did. Yeah, they're like, we know. This is one-time money. Yeah, it's... Yeah, 300000 here you go. Yeah. And so I did a feasibility study for the airport starting in 2014. And then I went to the FAA and said, I think something a little bigger than that. 
So let's do a 20 year plan for the airport going forward and use the feasibility study that I had and said, we've got a good start here. So we went out and did this master plan as I was leaving the airport. And so the airport has a 20 year plan. And so they've taken that plan and said, let's create a community redevelopment area, CRA out there. So that's the boundaries that's been created in the last two weeks. And with that, you can use tax increment through the RDA and the city council. And you can go to a developer and say, we have ways to tax incentivize this to make it better for you and better for us going forward to, to encourage you to to uh, come and do this project. Mm -hmm. So are you still involved out at the airport? No, 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 no. Um, I, you know, my wife died in 2016. And by 2019, I had just kind of said, maybe it's just time to be, be retired. I see. So I walked away in 2019 and where they brought in a great guy. He's, he's, he's carrying, we were just finishing up the, the master plan. And so he's been working that master plan, trying to mm. do the things that the plan uh, suggests to happen, mm -hmm. but nothing happens in the city in the short term. Everything yeah. is, I mean, we're 10 years on the wonder project. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you can pick the projects. I mean, I mean, they made a big deal about 550 24th Street, but that was an, a, a vacant lot and building for 15 years. I mean, you look at uh, it, um, 12th and Wall, where the Grand Central used to be, tore it down. Now they're trying to find a developer. And they've been trying to find one for more than 10 years. Yeah. It's, it's working on those kind of projects over time. Nothing happens in the short term. I guarantee you, nothing happens in the short term. So I'd sit there in my community development group because they oversaw the airport and so when you get to hear about all the things that are going on yeah the people that have made presentations they want to you know they want to try this and so you're looking for ways to yeah. get them to come to town well and it's another interesting thing you brought up that like i mean i don't know people like to complain about like how sometimes it feels like you need to be an insider in government to get things done but there's the other side of that is that like i mean we call it the speed of trust you know there is a if 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 the legislature is going to give $300,000 to somebody. This is a trust issue. Yeah. I mean, when you work with that group for four years, you, you build a level of trust. Um, um, and I joked with uh, Jerry Stevenson about this the other night. Um, he and uh, Stuart Adams, who's now the president of the Senate, were running a DNA bill for uh, Ryan Wilcox that came over from the House. But I didn't get to see the bill. I didn't see the bill because it didn't come through my committee. It went through their committee. And one of those two was the floor sponsor in the Senate. And we're going into the last night of the session. And I'm reading the bill before I vote the night before. And I'm saying, this isn't going to work. And so I'm over standing behind Jerry Stevenson and, and Stuart Adams. And we're doing, you can do, you know, five or ten word changes on the floor at that time. So we're standing there for 30 minutes changing words that I said, this won't work. So let's insert this few words and let's insert this few words mm. and we got a, a livable bill and then we run it over to the house and let ryan get it uh, floor voted over there right but yeah you, you build relationships there's people in the senate that have been there 20 yeah. years yeah, so right. yeah i know who they are yeah um, and you make friendships and yeah well, it's interesting. That almost seems like a bit of a theme with you. It's like, you know, they ask you to join the police force. Then, you know, it's like, I want to, I'm thinking about chief. The person in charge trusts you. They're thinking about Senate. People in charge of making important decisions tend to trust you. Happened with the airport, right? Yeah. So, uh, because that's essentially the mayor says, we need somebody out there that we can trust. And then, and they come to you. Is that how that went down? Well, basically. Uh, and even running for the mayor job, people came to me huh. and said, Hey, you already know how to do all of this. Would you consider running? And I thought, you know, I know what that job is, and it's it's crazy, or it can be crazy. Uh -huh. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I'm healthy. I got all my original parts except my tonsils. Uh, and, and and my mother said something to me once. Uh, she's going to be 97 in September. And when I retired, she said, okay, what are you going to do with the next 20 years of your life? <laughs> you gotta sit around and watch TV. What are you gonna do? So it worked on me a little bit. And I thought, you know what? I really do have an opportunity here. I do know the system. I I do have the friends. Mm -hmm. I can be of good to Ogden and keep this momentum going that really started in the last part of Meekham's administration. But it was really 
robust during Godfrey's administration. Mm-hmm. And so can you think of some things that you would want to uh, kind of focus on first as mayor? That, yeah. Uh, what always concerns me is because is I'm a fiscal kind of guy. I don't want the, the, the city to be burdened by too much by its own debt. And so you look at it right now and it looks like we're going to go into a recessionary period. And you start looking at what are the sales tax revenues because that's the biggest thing coming to the city to support its operations. And you notice that they only did a 1% COLA this year. Mm-hmm. So there's there's evidence at least building that we're going to go through an economic downturn over the next few years. So you got to prioritize what you're going to do and where you're going to go with it. And I want to see where we're at fiscally before I start doing any major projects because I think that Wonder Project is huge mm-hmm. and, they've, and they've bonded a lot for the debt on that. But where are we on some of the other things? And one of my big concerns was always we, you know, you got to replace a road, okay, 20-year, 30-year, whatever the life expectancy of the road is. And now you say, okay, it can go another year or go another two years or we patch it up. Well, I've been making phone calls to voters for weeks, and the biggest thing that comes up is they don't repair the roads in front of my house. Mm -hmm. And you know that it's been because they've extended the funding of it because they didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can't come in here and say, oh, I think this is be a great new project for the city. And it might take 10 years to put it together because, you know, the city has a list of, let's say there's 100 projects on that list. Each department head gets to throw a project in that's a priority to them. So, you know, and as the airport manager, I got a lot of projects done. Mm-hmm. But as the police chief, I had one project. One project on the list for the whole 16 years. Oh. And it didn't get funded, and it was required by state law. The requirement was that you qualify your officers with firearms twice a year. Okay, where do I do that? Well, the environmental people were mad at us for shooting into the hill uh-huh. by the golf course. Uh-huh. So I work with a foundation, the Swanson Foundation, that I've been on for 25 years. And they built this mega facility out um, in the northwest part of the county. Oh, this one's in tactical training center. Oh, okay. and so we got we got it done, but all it was really needed was a two lane indoor shooting facility. We had the ground on the north side of the public safety building, and so after I left, the city said, "Well, he isn't got a request in anymore." So they put the daughters of the Utah Pioneer Building. They moved it from wherever it was and put it on that site. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that when they picked up that building and drove it down the road. Well, that piece of ground was supposed to be my indoor indoor range. Oh. Well, so, um, like, do you think it's fair to expect that you would put some more resources into the police department? Are there things there you think we need? Um, that that would almost look like um, you're, you're electing a mayor with um, a bias. Mm-hmm. So the reality of it is, is the city does a very good job of benchmarking every single job in the city. So over a four or five pe- year period, every single job from street cleaner to the garbage collector, the fireman, the policeman, whatever, is benchmarked against 10 cities of comparable um, size and um, geography or population. Mm-hmm. So... What they do is they benchmark it, and that uses that's the basis for where they want to go with wages and salary structure and those kinds of things. So you don't walk in there and say, okay, I think the police department should be the highest paid police department in the state. We should be at market or above, but it's is yeah, I think it's too much to ask mm-hmm. that a guy coming in with 38 years in that department is going to prioritize that department when you, you have so many other... I mean, the police department has maybe 200 employees, but there's 650 regular full-time employees and 300 part-time ones mm. in the city. So you have to, as the mayor, your one of your big jobs is deliver services. People want roads. People want public safety. People want the things that city government is designed to do. So no, you you don't prioritize one department over another. Yeah, you might have a little bit of a bias because you know what's what goes on there, but it's it's equity. I mean, the council divides up the the money during the budget session, and so they get to see it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you present a budget as the mayor. They agree in most part, or they have projects they are interested in. And so it's it's a communication and a work out, I mean, between the two bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're separate, but they're both responsible for making the budget that goes into effect on July 1st. Yeah. Do you feel like there are parts of the job as mayor that you're going to have to like catch up on that you're really not too familiar with? Uh, I understand that job. Um, and I understand what community development has been doing for the last 10 years in that part of the deal. The things that I haven't been involved in a lot that I know the mayor's involved in is like the league of city and towns and the chamber process and WACOG and some of those parts of state where the groups have gotten together and the, and they have elected leadership and they work on things there. There's transportation plans. There's, there's all those kinds of things that the mayor spends some of their time with just so that they can offer their input, look for ways to improve their community and mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are those ancillary things that the mayor's job that, I've never had any involvement with. I know they exist, mm-hmm. and I know some of the people around all of them. Yeah, um, because well, you've, you've even probably kind of gotten a general sense of them from your time in the Senate. I would think a lot of those things. That and the police chief job. I mean, yeah. um, League of Cities and Towns. If I got an issue as a police officer or police chief, I go to the League of Cities and Towns, and I said, "Can we get the police chiefs together because we have an issue here?" Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about the Hatch Act thing because I thought it was really cool, your, your testimony. <laughs> Hatch Act mostly meant to apply to federal employees um, and, and sort of prevent them from running for partisan office as much as I understand it. And so you sort of got caught up into it, even though you were a city employee. How did that work? Is that it's because the city was taking federal grants that suddenly people start looking at the Hatch Act? No. Um, the State Democratic Party filed a complaint. Not, well, it wasn't anonymous. They put their name on it. And the election's in November. They file it um, the end of September. Two weeks into October, I'm at a chief's convention. I get a call from the Office of Special Counsel. We have a complaint. Could you send us the federal grants that you're involved in? Hmm. So I send them a copy of the grants. And by the week of the election or somewhere around there, we think you uh, may be in violation. Okay, you think I may be in violation, but you're not sure I'm in violation, so I'm not stopping my campaign. So it goes forward. And as we um, get just barely past the election, um, Senator Ballantyne, who's the president of the Senate, comes to me and said, is there a problem? Is there going to be a problem? Are you going to have to resign or whatever? I said, I don't think so. And so he asked the attorney general for an opinion. So the attorney general's opinion was, because I didn't get any benefit whatsoever. And there's this de minimis standard. So de minimis in their minds was at least you got $1. Well, I never even got a dollar because mm. I didn't buy a vest. All I did was sign as the executive of the agency requesting it. And so there was this back and forth. The attorney general was selling us and the Senate president. I was not in violation. And so we would go three years and nothing happens. Then all of a sudden, as we approach the next election cycle, they decide to have a trial. Mm. So they have a trial and they, and the, the, the judge says, yeah, you didn't touch a dollar, but we think um, just signing the things is enough. Even though there was precedent before that you had to at least have received some pecuniary benefit. So... Um, we were in the process of appealing it. My brother-in-law was the, the corporate attorney for Huntsman Chemical. And so he kind of was my attorney on this and we appealed it. And as it's working its way through, Jason, Jason Chaffetz, um, gets a hold of us and said, you know, I really am tired of this hatch act and the way it's being abused. Mm-hmm. So he called me back to the oversight committee and I testified and the lady in charge of the agency, um, Office of Special Counsel, even came and testified on my behalf. Oh. Carolyn Lerner. She came and testified and said, this is ridiculous. We're not serving anybody by doing this, and it's being used as a political weapon. Hmm. So the, <laughs> we got Democrats and Republicans all sitting there saying, this is ridiculous. So they put it together, sent it to the Senate. Um, Senator Lee works it. 
ends up on Obama's desk. He signs it. And at the end of the day, it now does not apply to a state or local person unless they get 50% of their salary huh. from a federal grant. Wow. So they defined where that really is. Yeah. And it's not this arbitrary, what is de minimis? Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so it, start, it, it sort of came up during your first election, but everyone's like, uh, you know, we think this is We fine. did three years, never heard anything from them. But then it's when your, your Getting ready first to, re-election campaign or comes Or when you file, yeah. Yeah, okay. So when it's time to file for re-election, then they say, well, we better have a trial about this? Yeah, well, it was a couple of months before it, but uh, they hadn't made a decision. And so I went in and filed, mm-hmm. and like on a Monday, and um, they called and said, yeah, we decided you're in violation. So if you file again i had already filed if you file again and continue we'll file another complaint oh so the guy that i ran against uh for the he was the democrat and in, in in my race he changed his party affiliation to republican and filed as a republican oh. for, my, for the seat oh interesting <laughs> and and if you would have filed and they would have found that it was that you violated the hatch act would you have lost your chief job you don't really lose the chief job. What they say is if you keep him as chief, you're going to lose Federal. up to two years of grant, future grants. I see. So you make a decision. Is he worth keeping or do you want the money? It's going to be coming down the road for the next few years. I see. Okay. So, yeah, you say, no, I'm not. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And so then you just kind of have to, I guess, you just don't seek re-election in the Senate and... Don't seek re-election in the Senate, and we got a new mayor coming in the door. He wanted to start clean, and it was just the right decision. Just say, yeah, I'm okay. Hmm. We haven't resolved the first one yet, so let's... Um, so do you stop, be, you stop being a senator and the police chief uh-huh. all at that time? Well, the Senate one was... Um, so we, we had a file for the Senate in March, and the general election would have been in November. Hmm. So I... So I stopped being, I didn't refile in March. And so my term ended the end of December anyway. Right, right. And the new senator came in and would have started in January. Right, right. And so at the end of December, I left being police chief too. So mm. they kind of were together. I see. Hmm. And so then, and so then not long after you go to the airport. Right. And you're, you're there for like, from what it sounds like, you probably get in there right before a lot of the commercial flights start happening a lot. We were just. They just barely had Allegiant. Uh-huh. Allegiant had come on board. And so we went to um, several other airlines. They were interested. They liked the feasibility study because they could see where the population base was, how many people would be interested in coming, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the demographics of that. So we convinced Allegiant to do two more flights. Mm-hmm. And then after I left, uh, the current manager brought in a Velo. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day... There's a problem in the industry. It wasn't that the routes weren't profitable, but there were routes that were more profitable. And when you have limited pilots and crews, you're going to put your planes where they're the most profitable. Oh. So the plan for the airport going forward is, okay, let's do like Provo, build a terminal, because it's it wasn't really a terminal. I mean, it, it was, but yeah, they've got a, a $10 million grant to start building a, a new facility. They've had indications from airlines that they might be interested in coming back. But we're still back to the, there's not enough pilots mm. to fly all these planes. Mm. And, and so that's a big deal. So it wasn't that Ogden wasn't coming through for the airlines nope. necessarily. All right. No, it was. Yeah, because my sense was they were selling out even yep, pretty yep. often. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, do you have a sense of what the airport kind of needs going forward? What's going to bring that back? Is it this, um, this $10 million? I think that's the start. I think, uh, and the, and you you can borrow against your future um, money. The airport gets, let's say, three hundred thousand dollars for runway repair per year. Mm-hmm. If you put um, ten thousand people through the door as a commercial airport, you get a million dollars. So that seven hundred fifty thousand dollars is a big deal to you in improving your facilities, your tarmac, your runway, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's. There's an incentive for Ogden to get commercial back, even if it's just twice a week with Allegiant or whatever. Yeah. Because that gets you that million dollars. And then it goes up progressively from there. 
So if you have more airlines and you're putting more passengers at the door, you get more than a million. Hmm. So you can really develop that airport quickly if you start getting larger months, amounts of money, yeah. so to speak. Interesting. So that's why, kind of why, I mean, they took the master plan and they said, okay, let's create this CRA. And CRA is nothing more than a federal act from 1977 or something that, that encourages banks to um, invest. invest in their community. And let's create a CRA in the boundaries. We'll put it so that the RDA, which is basically the council and the mayor, work on how to use tax increment and what we can offer to a new business coming in there. And let's develop that. That's a jewel out there that's just been underappreciated for a long time. Mm -hmm. It seems like some of the businesses who kind of got grouped into that zone are concerned about it, but they seem like, I don't know. Well, yeah, they do, and I and I appreciate that, and I understand it. It's um, it's about renovating some of the older parts of the airport. the The new manager has put in some areas on the west side that are going to be conducive to building new businesses and hangars on that west side, um, and that's what's going to happen. And over time, you'll see the sixty, seventy year old hangars uh, on the east side of the airport start to go away. Um, because they'll be put in redevelopment in, mm. in terms of what the city may may want to do. But the city's not going to do anything unless you walk in and say, I need this much space. And so the city's going to look at, okay, we can put you here, we can put you here, or you can help us develop this piece over here, and we'll have to go to the hangar owners and, and figure out what to do. I see. Okay. Um got a lot of respect for the candidates that are running you know and, yeah and then and then and i don't know what the citizens are looking for you never know and so they probably look at me and say yeah you've got the most experience and you've been here forever and you're a product of this community but we want a change we want to look at something else or you don't know what a voter is going to do in a primary mm -hmm. so depending on whatever your group is uh, that's supporting you We'll dictate what happens in the primary. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming you down. Bet, I really John. appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you to all of you for listening. And look, I just want to say something. I started the show because I love Ogden and I want to help everyone, myself included, get to know Ogden better. So I'm always looking for new ways to show off Ogden and its people. If you have an idea for a project, an interview, a cause, hell, even a ad for a small local business, Hit us up. 